0: Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau.
1: Prostitution. Crime. Gun running. History. Drugs. Law enforcement. We're seeing a a golden age of corruption right now. Working on his
0: 30th book. I think the best stories come from the truth. With an eye toward becoming a crime novelist. All the
1: things that happen in your community that maybe you don't know about. As a young man, you were reading books by Robert Parker. It was like time travel. It was absolutely fascinating.
0: What do you want to do with that? Uh, Making a difference in your own community. If you love it, you're good at it. Good things will happen. Write a damn good book. Chances are you know his work, even if you don't know him. From a young crime reporter at the Tampa Tribune to full-time novelist at age 30, Ace Atkins won a Pulitzer Prize nomination for a feature series on his investigation into a forgotten murder of the 1950s, which became the core of his critically acclaimed novel, White Shadow. In 2011, Atkins was selected by the estate of Robert B. Parker, to take over the Spencer series of detective novels. As a kid, Atkins had consumed each of the Spencer novels. As an adult, he was honored to be asked to author 10 of those novels himself. Now working on his 30th novel, Ace joins us from Oxford, Mississippi, to talk about the writing process, the Spencer series, and how he ended up on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Ace Atkins, thanks for joining me on The Bureau. Hey, good to be here, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Of course. You know, I, 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 only a few minutes after meeting you, I said, you know, I think I want to invite Ace onto the podcast. and, And here's why. I think you represent the intersection of what my podcast is about, which is crime, mystery, law enforcement, and the processes and cultures involved in that. And you kind of sit across those and not to mention our listeners are avid readers and uh likely many of them fans of yours many of them probably very familiar with your work not so familiar with you sure. and so i when we met in tucson arizona at a brandeis book and author club event i uh i really was intrigued and and You've got a kind of unique story. Unique's an overused word, but about how you came to be uh, such a successful author, I want folks to hear that, and I also want folks to know that. Again, the first time we met was a dinner for a handful of authors to, the night before this book event, and I'm I'm at this dinner table <laughs> with with the authors, and I. And I I realized there is this man sitting at the table who has, if I've got this right, tell me if I'm wrong, is working on his 30th book. Is that correct? That's right. That is correct. And so I kind of stopped, my fork kind of stopped halfway to my mouth because I'm at the, I'm kind of the other extreme of the experience spectrum of authors, which is I published my first book and (laughs) and I, and I'm working on my second and, and kind of struggling. And I thought this, I got to hear from this guy. So thanks for joining.
1: Oh, absolutely! Well, Frank, you have a, you have a one or two stories to tell. I think a uh, uh, life experience makes up for a, a great amount of what makes a great novel. So I can't wait to see what you have next. But oh, yeah, thanks. no, it was f- so much fun to to connect, and I think we started uh, getting along right away. We had a nice dinner and uh, uh, loved hearing your personal story. And uh, glad you're interested to, to hear the side of a story of a former reporter.
0: And in, and in, indeed, and that's um, that's what we want to talk about: is your personal journey to where you are now, and Let's talk about that. You, this is something is, again, I use that word unique to your story. You actually became a journalist with the, with an eye toward becoming a crime novelist. Tell, tell us about that.
1: I did. I mean, I think the, as we were talking about earlier, I think the key in any type of good writing, any type of, um, you know, becoming a novelist, telling a good tale is is personal experience, personal stories. You know, actually seeing how the way the world works. You know, you can't do that just sitting in an office. You can't do that just watching television or an episode or two or of uh, Law and Order. Uh, you've got to go out and, and live it. And so for me, getting out of college, uh, the, you know, so many people that I really admired as novelists, particularly crime novelists, had been newspaper reporters. And I was very fortunate in the 1990s where the newspaper business was still a very viable business. It still was a very healthy business, it's really to get at the, the tail end of the golden age of journalism, you know, back during the days when your local newspaper was really healthy. But it was ultimately my end game to become a novelist. Um, I just wanted that experience. I wanted to, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to cover, I uh, was working for the Tampa Tribune. I covered the Tampa Police Department, the, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, uh, the FBI, DEA. I uh, used to go out with the marshals all the time. And it was a wonderful experience. Uh, just learning, you know, it was, it was eye-opening for a young man at that time to see all the things that happen in your community that maybe you don't know about. Uh, what happens from day to day, all the drama that happens just within a 24-hour period. And that was something that, you know, you see those little news bites you know, each night on your nightly news. But, you know, until you're there and you're meeting both the people that are, are working in law enforcement, also people that are the victims, uh, you don't really get a full handle on it. So it was a absolutely invaluable experience.
0: Yeah. You know, I actually, it's kind of funny, my 25 years in the FBI, I held uh, the media at arm's length. As I rose up the ranks, I realized, I, you know, you want to bring them in and you can use them strategically. But I saw them as kind of not so much an adversary, but but somebody that could cause trouble for the law enforcement mission. And then, now here I am, post-FBI career, and I'm, you know, I'm an M- NBC, MSNBC national security contributor. I'm on cable TV all the time, and I have the deepest respect for the similarities in the process of the, particularly the investigative journalists I work with, their methodology, their vetting process, and I find so many similarities between what they do for a living and what I did for a living. And I've got a kind of a newfound respect for that.
1: Well, one of my, um, I think the go-to quote that I often would get, and I almost could write the story before I called our local contact at the FBI, which was no comment. Uh, No comment (laughs) was the the, the go-to statement uh, most often from the feds that I was, uh, or with the FBI office in Tampa. But it is, a, it's you know, with law enforcement, especially, you know, working with the police department there, the sheriff's office there, it really was a, a two-way street where we were able to get information out about certain crimes and assist in a way that they needed us. And at the same time, when we needed to tell a story and got information, we knew how those things worked uh, hand in hand. And I think what we're going through right now, particularly what you write about, uh, Frank, and, and, and your passion as far as honor, integrity, you know, looking out, um, you know, as far as corruption within local government, that kind of thing. That's what, you know, I think the journalism uh, over the years had done so well in these communities, whether it was small town journalism, or it was a a major city, uh, you always had, you know, reporters as a watchdog, you had people, you know, we had one guy that just in particular, you know, his job was just to watch the county budget. Uh, You had somebody else count, you know, covering the city, where is the money going, watching somebody and that kept you know, everybody honest. And as the newspapers have declined, as we have fewer and fewer uh, journalists that are are actually working as watchdogs in communities, we're seeing a a golden age of corruption right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't have that. They feel like they can just do this unencumbered. I mean, there's a case right now in Mississippi that involves some, some local characters, local crooks with money that was earmarked for people that were in poverty. And the money ended up being parceled out to this one group's friends, family, uh, an ex-pro wrestler. Part of this money actually millions of dollars went to ex-quarterback Brett Favre you know, with no oversight. And I think that um, you know it is being reported now in the news but, you know, this is why we need journalism. And it's it's again, it's, you know, hopefully keeping everybody honest. Totally, totally agree. Um, a necessary, essential part of our
0: society that I fear we're we're losing. Um, and we absolutely so we better be careful about that. You know, you, you mentioned Ace, the, uh, the Mississippi case involving a former NFL football player Brett Favre this will be a, a a good a shameless segue into the fact that you you yourself played ball uh, at the college <laughs> At the college level, and even even made the cut. Co- that is a yeah, shameless, right?
1: That uh, is an awkward awkward segue. Yeah. yeah.
0: See, Speaking of criminal football players, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, excuse me. And and by the way, I'm not accusing I'm not accusing Brett Favre of being a criminal. Um, but we'll see how this plays out. Um, but you played ball in college, and t- tell us about about that. It's all part of this kind of compelling story of. Uh, of a young man who decides to write for a living. What? What? what where'd you play? Uh,
1: how'd that work? And how did you end up on the cover of Sports Illustrated? Well, I, um, you know, I think this is something that I talk to my my sons about often. Um, is I think people expect you to be a certain type of thing, one thing that you are a football player, uh, you are a writer, you are a, an artist, that kind of thing. And and I think over the years, you know, I the one thing that I try to relate to people, especially younger people, is you can be many different things. You don't have to be just one type of person. I mean, there's, there's a certain, uh, certain image that is projected, somebody who is an athlete, somebody who is a uh, a football player, certain, certainly a college football player. Uh, back in the 90s when I was playing, that necessarily wasn't a good connotation. It wasn't something that usually matched with people that uh, read books and, and were interested in writing and that kind of thing. But I had always been interested uh, in books from a very early age. I knew I wanted to be a writer, but at the same time, I wasn't uh, an athlete. I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to Auburn University. I was there up until uh, the early '90s. We I was played on a fantastic team in 1993. We were undefeated. But going back to the (laughs) <laughs> the common hook of corruption and that kind of thing we were on probation at the time that's why we did not go to play for a national championship oh. or go go to a bowl game so you know some of these stories it's funny when I talk about them they kind of go hand in hand uh learning about uh you know the the, the issues of corruption and and um character uh, that that people that have flaws that, you know, I mean, this is something that I learned about firsthand, even in college, but yeah, no, no. So I, I was fortunate enough. I, uh, from that season, I was featured on the cover of sports illustrated was great. Uh, The bad side of that, there is certainly a a sports illustrated curse. So uh, when I finished with that season, I was not on the want list of any major, uh, you know, NFL franchise. And uh, I decided to get started writing. It took a while to get established, but I finally uh, landed at a newspaper and started a new career. And uh, there were a lot of things that I learned from athletics. It wasn't necessarily, you know, completely separate. You know, being part of a team is like being part of a newsroom, always being ready to, you know, cover a breaking news event, uh, you know, working hard, you know, looking at the work that you've done is almost like a watching game film, reading your stories and seeing how you can improve. You know, your editors are kind of like your coaches and they're just as salty, tough and direct as as any college coach I ever worked with. Uh, And so it was very fortunate. It was like going from a, you know, from one team to another. And the the transition was uh, not easy, but uh, very fortunate for me. I would have never become a, a working novelist now in 2022 had it not been for that experience.
0: You know, I've lost track of the number of guests we've had on who have echoed what something similar to what you just said was about people's expectations of you and not adhering to them. And sure. and um, it's uh it's it's happened again and again and again. Uh and particularly, you know, for someone who's played ball, what it, if you told your coaches
1: or or teammates, "Hey, I I want to write for a living." What what was that response like? Well, you know, it depended on the coach. You know, I I had to The last year I was playing at Auburn, I had a wonderful coach, head coach named Terry Bowden. And, uh, you know, I was kind of shocked when he came in because he was actually a reader. He had a law degree. I think he passed the bar. He was a very intelligent guy. And so when he would see me reading a book, he would be interested. What are you reading? And, you know, what are you into? And that kind of stuff. And we've remained friends. Uh, Of course, there were some other characters that were coaches, um, some of the assistant coaches that thought, somebody sitting around reading a book for enjoyment was a complete waste of time, unless it was either, uh, you know, it was, it was a playbook, you know, if it was, if it wasn't a playbook, then you were wasting your time. So uh, you had certain kind of coaches that matched that kind of stereotype, but then I was fortunate enough to meet some other coaches that, that uh, kind of celebrated that appreciated it. And they actually did like the idea of somebody being a student athlete, that they really were trying to, to improve themselves and, and uh, you know, appreciate literature and appreciate learning about the world and, and, and I, and I gravitated to those guys a lot more.
0: Let me share a word about a critical topic. My entire career has been about safety and security. You've heard me say before that cyber is the new battlefield. And that battle plays out every day on our devices and computers. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years. And trusted by over 435 million users, Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy. No matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect, you can enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now, here's why I like what Avast has to offer. They've got firewall protection that keeps personal information secure, and prevents attacks that seek to access our computers and steal our data. They've got ransomware protection that secures our personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now, let's return to our guest. So you start out your your journalism career
1: in a, a local Tampa newspaper. Do I have that right? long journey. I mean, I, I came out of school. I had not gone to journalism school. Getting into journalism was a pivot that I did out of college. You know, I was very naive. I thought that I could leave college and go to Hollywood and get a job as a screenwriter or sit down and, and write a novel immediately and it would be published. and I'd be on the New York Times list and that kind of thing. I was, I was very naive. I was very single-minded, but I didn't know everything that got into it. And I had a friend who said, you know, if you're really serious about writing, Uh, and you really, really should get into journalism. And I thought, you know, I had not taken any journalism classes at Auburn. I was not, you know, necessarily prepped for this, but I was very eager. I had um, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, and I had to start at the bottom. And I started off, you know, I didn't start off getting a job on the crime beat. I didn't start off becoming, you know, the crime reporter for the Tampa Tribune. I started off as a a low-level correspondent, you know, one story at a time while I had another job working for the St. Petersburg Times. And I did that actually for almost two years before I amassed enough uh, clips and experience that I was hired at the Tampa Tribune. Uh, But, you know, going from, you know, a a major college program and, and, you know, being an athlete and having people cheer for you and that kind of thing to covering prep sports of teenagers uh, was an adjustment. But, uh, you know, I, I think that I tried to to really kind of relay that into some of the students I had when I was teaching journalism is you have to be willing to do whatever it takes and even starting at the bottom. And so it was starting from the bottom and, and working my way up and, and again, invaluable experience.
0: Yeah. I think so often uh, we want immediate gratification and uh, we we have to learn to play the long game. Absolutely. No, no sports pun intended. Sure. Not only did you cover law enforcement, including the FBI during your time as a crime beat reporter, but then- as you transitioned into uh, an author you you came across the FBI in the form of freedom of information act requests involving a gangster tell uh, tell us about that uh, process and wh- and why were you why were you requesting information on a on a gangster from the FBI
1: Well, you know, early in my career, I was doing books that were kind of traditional detective stories. I had a character that I followed that was in New Orleans and very much cut in the mold of a, you know, Raymond Chandler type storytelling and that kind of thing. And as I got older, I realized that I wanted to to use the the skills that I had learned as a newspaper reporter and and doing interviews, uh, digging into files, digging into cold cases. I had actually written some cold case stories that I was very passionate about when I was at the newspaper. And I thought about really marrying those two worlds of both storytelling but also investigative research and so you know I had done a few of those books and I was in uh, I was in Memphis looking at a completely different story and the archivist there tipped me that they had some papers that were connected to machine gun Kelly back in 1933 who was apprehended by the FBI in Memphis in the fall of that year and uh there were probably about 30 pages, all from the Memphis Police Department. And uh, I wrote to the FBI, contacted the, uh, the office there, the, uh, the press office there, told them that I was working on. And uh, within a very short amount of time, I got a file. I was not the first to request this file on, on Machine Gun Kelly. It was on a disk back in the day. I imagine they could just zap it to me now. And it was 7,000 pages of FBI documents. And of course, Frank, you know this, many of those documents are duplicates. So, you know, maybe 3,000 good, you know, good pages, and then some duplicates in there. But it was fascinating. It was it was really, uh, it was about Machine Gun Kelly, his run from the law, his kidnapping of a, of a wealthy oil man in Oklahoma named Charlie Urschel. It was also the very early days, as you know, the history of, of the FBI, where occasionally some of these men that they had hired were ex-Texas uh, Rangers, some really grizzled kind of old cowboy types who had been around forever uh, that worked some of these cases. And it was just a it was like time travel. It was absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And so many, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, which we could spend on a whole another podcast talking about the history with J. Edgar Hoover, but also he was a, um, you know, emphatic about keeping great narratives in, in those early uh, reports. And those early reports were exceptionally detailed. And for a novelist, they were a treasure trove of just tracking down you know, a certain hotel that existed at the time or an interview with somebody that knew George Kelly or knew his wife, Catherine. You know, it was a a wild road trip that went all the way from Memphis to Oklahoma to Chicago, Iowa. And, you know, the the FBI was hot on his trail, but it just, those reports provided me with the framework that I needed to tell this story. And um, that's really what I love doing is when I can marry those two worlds of, you know, digging into the files or doing firsthand interviews. That's the kind of story that I like is I think the best stories come from the truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the details are so important. They, Absolutely. They, they allow you to add new, subtle nuance to stories and just add color and context. And so for our readers saying, hey, I might want to add a good read to my reading list. Uh, what what, what did that research turn
1: into? What's the name of the book? That's a book called Infamous. It came, about, came out about uh, 10 years ago and was part of four different books that I had written about different historic events that I was really passionate about, became really obsessed with. Um, Another book that I had written was a novel called Wicked City that was about the most crime-ridden town in America back in the mid 1950s. a lot of people, you know, it's funny when you hear people talk about, oh, the good old days and, you know, the 1950s were like, leave it to Beaver and how lovely it is and how bad things are today. But, you know, in the middle of Alabama, or actually in the, on the eastern side of Alabama, before you get into to Georgia, was a town called Phoenix City, Alabama. And everything you could think about that is illegal happened in that town. It was people, you know, now remember, they say, oh, it was like a little Las Vegas. It, it actually was more like a little Tijuana, prostitution, gun running, drugs. Uh, early days of pornography, all this was happening in the mid 1950s in Alabama. And uh, law enforcement at the time that was, you know, working that area, of course, was corrupt. Uh, And then also state uh, leaders turned a blind eye because so much money was generated from this. It was right near Fort Benning. And so the soldiers, you know, it was just a cash cow that was just churning an immense amount of money. So that was another story i got into and I and that was one of those those stories that not only am I doing research with reports and with with old records people are still alive from that time and I went out and talked to them and I, I met a man that worked in one of the uh the casinos there and uh he told me how they would mark cards and how would they would uh you know uh try to try to rig the games and you know those things like that again that's firsthand research that I could sit here in my office for you know 100 years and not come up with but getting out and talking to people uh you know, you learn so much, and then that sparks something in your mind creatively, where you can turn that into a novel. Well,
0: and this gets into the joy of of not only writing something you're passionate about, but then as a as the reader, we love we love seeing that passion come through and learning a bit of uh, of our own national history through a great read. And that, that that brings us to this transition from covering the crime beat to writing crime novels. And this really cool element of your story, which is that as a young man, a kid, high school kid, you were reading books by Robert Parker, and particularly the Spencer uh, detective series. Yeah, absolutely. And, and now, you know, take, take, it, take us from that young man reading the Spencer series of detective novels, and, and suddenly you end up taking over that series as the author. Tell us how that happens.
1: Yeah, that was a very personal uh, thing for me. I would I would never write for another author um, or write for a, a late author's estate or work for you know a James Patterson to write. That's never been an interest uh, to me at all. Uh, but when it was offered to me, if I would be interested in continuing these Spencer novels, this is something that went back to my passion for reading back when I was a young young man and when I was in high school. And I don't think I would have been as passionate about books or wanted a career of being a crime reporter or the type of stories that I'm telling now, had it not been for Robert B. Parker. And there was something about this character, Spencer, that your listeners may know. Um, You know, he's a private detective in Boston. He's a tough guy, but he also... Uh, is very literate. Uh, he can quote Shakespeare. He also is a terrific cook. He appreciates the finer things in life, and it really spoke to me about what we were talking earlier about Frank, which is you don't have to be one thing. You can be in law enforcement, or you can be a football player, or you can do this, but you can also like classical music. You also can like fine dining. You can also enjoy reading and and that kind of thing. You can you can be a cultured person, and that's what those Spencer books were all about. I just love them. There's a great amount of humor in them. I think that it also spoke to me at a time that. You know, I was very aware of of corruption and and uh, frailties and human nature, and and I and I read all those things and Robert Parker's uh, view of the world, the way he saw the world as the world being an imperfect place filled with people that uh, you know that that can do very very bad things, but not to let that corrupt you internally. Uh, I liked that message. I liked the way he wrote. I thought he was not only uh, a brilliant writer, I thought he was very funny. I liked his humor. I liked the way that he often would turn humor on people that could, you know, try to corrupt you or or make you angry or try to try to corrupt you in that kind of way internally. And, and he always was able to not let that inside. And so I just love that character. So you flash forward, you know, I, I, I wrote Parker a, a fan letter back in the 90s and And then later on he was back in the late nineties was one of the first people to blurb my first novel. Uh, and I just was thrilled. I mean, he was an absolute hero of mine. And I always thought at some point, you know, Bob and I would become good friends and our paths would cross up in Boston and I'd sit down with Parker and we'd have a beer and, and connect. And, and we corresponded a lot. And I think that would have happened. And um, unfortunately he passed away in, in 2010. He was actually working on his next book sitting at his desk and, um, I was, at that time, I had published, I guess, 10 books, and I was at the same publisher as Mr. Parker, and very proud, actually, to be with that publisher because of the, the, uh, the long connection that Parker had had to it, and uh, my editor said that the family was interested in continuing the Spencer books, and would I be interested to be one of the people submitting some pages, and I said, Ab- absolutely. This is not anything I'd want to do for anybody else, but it's just too much connected to my personal journey, my personal story, not to attempt it. And uh, I was fortunate to find out a short time later, they chose me to do this. And I did it for 10 years. I'm not doing it anymore. I just, the last book that I did was called Bye Bye Baby, aptly named. Uh, and I did 10 books in 10 years. And I took the series up to 50 books. And, um, you know, now I'm concentrating on my own things. But uh, it was, it was a real honor and, and a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine from going from a, maybe a sixteen-year-old high school kid who who started reading the Spencer novels to being asked and honored to carry on the tradition of the Spencer novels. It's got to be. It's just got to be astounding. It would, you know, I think in my world and in my interest level, it w- it would have been something like uh, Tom Clancy's estate asking me to to carry on his, yeah, his novels. I, I read his stuff uh, voraciously
1: and oh, I did too. I was a big. In fact, my my editor. Um- Neil Niren was one of his very, very first editors. And he was his editor during a lot of those big early books uh, when he when he uh, came on to Putnam. And uh, and then a good connection, I have a friend here in um, the Memphis area, and I Mark Greeney. And Mark was uh, one of the first or the first person to start writing novels with Clancy when Clancy was still alive. And he felt, I think about Clancy, in the same way that I felt about Robert Parker. So it was a very personal thing. And I got to become very good friends. Uh, I spent a tremendous amount of time in Boston, got to be very close with Joan Parker, Bob's wife. She became a wonderful friend and a real supporter of what we were trying to do. And and Bob's uh, best friend was a man named Mel Farman and he became my go-to researcher Pal, uh, you know when I'd land at Logan Airport, uh, always would meet Mel for a drink, and then we were off researching whatever the next Spencer adventure was. And um, it was a it was a good time. A really great. Yeah, time. it's
0: a great a great partnership. And uh, and obviously, as you just referenced, the the time came where you said, I, you know, it's, I've done ten of these. We've taken it to fifty total Spencer novels, and you you've made the decision to continue to do your your own thing. And what's what's that what's that looking like for you? What's What's been published? What are you working on?
1: So when I was writing these books, we were talking about earlier, talking about books about Machine Gun Kelly or Phoenix City, Alabama. And I did another book that was about uh, the mafia in Tampa and Cuba during the 1950s. I said, I will never write another series ever again. I started my career writing a series. I said, this is it. I did my series earlier. I'm never going to do a continuing character. And then in the, you know, come around 2010 till, till now, I'm writing two series. So I'm writing a uh, very gritty urban Boston, but at the same time, I'm writing my neck of the woods here in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, writing about North Mississippi, writing about Memphis. Uh, I have a continuing character, a guy named Quinn Colson who was a Army vet that returns home to his town. And he's finding out that a lot of problems that he saw you know, in Afghanistan are happening in his own backyard. And it's a really, it's about a series of, about making a difference in your own community. And, um, you know, he's very quickly realized a lot of the things that he was dealing with as, you know, village chieftains and corruption and religious fundamentalism and, um, you know, hypocrisy and all this kind of stuff is happening in his own community. And so working, you know, he, re- he runs for sheriff and it's an evolving story. And, and uh, that book, the 11th in the series came out last year and then we'll, it's called the heathens and will be out in paperback in a week. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. Well, all right. So we'll be looking for the
0: heathens and, uh, now you, you've mentioned Oxford, Mississippi, that's where you are based. And I, when I think of Oxford, uh, like so many people, I just think of authors, writers. What, what is it about Oxford, Mississippi <laughs> that has everybody from John Grisham to Ace Atkins working and, and living there?
1: That's was funny. Uh, Richard Howorth, who really is he's the owner of square books here in town uh which is one of the best independent bookstores in the country he, he gets that question asked of him all the time and he says they've come for the water the waters here the beautiful waters in oxford um but if, i guess if that's true the waters would be uh, the bourbon that's served here at the at the, the local bar yeah. but, you know the tradition that goes all the way back to you know arguably the greatest writer of the 20th century william faulkner and his his shadow is here everywhere i mean here i'm looking out you know, my, my window here, and I could see the town square and I could see the, the old courthouse and the um, the old Confederate statue that he would write about in The Sound of the Fury. And it's just e- everywhere. And that eventually, you know, led to Oxford having a, a you know, serious literary reputa- reputation with, with people that wanted to come here and they wanted to see Faulkner's world to in the 1970s to, to Richard and Lisa Howorth opening up this fantastic uh bookstore that I hope Frank sometime that you'll you could come visit and we could we could talk there in person um, all the way to writers like Willie Morris and Barry Hannah and the, the, my my wonderful late friend Larry Brown who really wrote about the modern world of, of North Mississippi and so that has you know continued today. There's you know at least 10 and, um, you know 10 to 12 nationally known novelists and poets uh, that live here in the in the Oxford area and uh, fortunate to have them all, all as friends and it's a it's a truly it's really a writer's community yeah yeah
0: it sounds like a wonderful place well let's talk about writing because again that first night that we met at a dinner uh, I just stopped in my tracks realizing that you've you've been doing for a living uh, what I've been struggling to do once and now twice so tell us about the you've been, you've
1: been you've been a little busy frank though it wasn't yeah like yeah you were yeah, yeah, saying, yeah oh, i've got well.
0: i've got i've got some <laughs> things going i've got some no, things going on sure that's some things going on my my next book is going to be uh, true crime and uh, i i may consult with you on that but uh, in the research phase now well, how's it work for you? You get up in the morning, uh, you got a rhythm to this. What What do you do? What works? What doesn't work?
1: What have you found over the years uh, that makes uh, makes you write and write well? You know, I think sticking on a good routine is very important. And I think that having some type of discipline is absolutely key. You know, I'm extremely fortunate and so happy that, you know, years later, I'm able to, to, to make a living at something that I Would be doing anyway, something that I love doing. And so that's a great thing. But, you know, I I have an office here, but, you know, I don't have a boss. You know, I'm not punching the clock. The only person that's really watching out for me is me. And um, I have to be hard on myself and I have to make sure that I'm keeping those hours. I have to make sure that I'm getting my writing done. Because at the end of the day, you know, nobody really knows besides me how much work that I've done at that time. And that's, you got to have a certain amount of self discipline. Now, let me tell you, not every day is great. And I'd love to tell you that I am here in a you know shirt and tie and I'm sitting here working every day at the computer and doing a great job. But no, there, there are days that you have distractions and there are days that you know you have family commitments. There are things that don't go, you know, uh well at all. There's there's wonderful days. You know, sometimes I'm sitting here and having a nice cup of coffee and it's lovely here in the courthouse in the Oxford Square and I'm tapping away and having a I say, God I can't believe that I'm I'm actually getting paid to do this. Uh and then there are days that I want to take this you know, this, this laptop, and I want to throw it out on the street. Uh, So there are good days and bad days. And what I always tell people who are interested in writing is whatever works for you, and whatever motivates you and whatever makes you most comfortable. If If it's working at a coffee shop, if it's great, if it's, you know, standing on your head while you're typing, you know, do that. But whatever... Is going to make you in, a, in the frame of mind that you need to be creative is is really key, and sometimes that takes creativity itself. You know, it takes some creativity to figure out what is going to motivate you to that day, what's going to work for you.
0: I'm sure we've got uh, would be writers and 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 some successful writers amongst our listeners right now, and and uh, this is good advice, good advice. But I've also learned, you know, I'm I'm keenly aware that success. In whatever fashion breeds the or enables the ability to walk into a publisher and get a deal and i know and i feel for so many great writers out there many of them contact me and uh, for advice and and you know i i'm very humble about this i say look i am i am keenly aware that i got a book deal and now a second deal because i i'm a known quantity out there i'm on television and i i, I will sell some books. And I'm very aware that that doesn't mean I'm, I'm the world's greatest writer. What's your advice to people out there who say, "I just want to get, I want to get an audience with a publisher. How do how do I get started? How do I break through this current marketplace where it seems that publishers just want somebody who's going to
1: sell, not necessarily somebody who's is the greatest writer." Well, I think it, it, it works a little bit differently for whatever project you're working on. I mean, I think certainly for nonfiction projects, I think that is a key component, which is somebody who is a known figure. Certainly if you are a celebrity or you have an existing audience, it is gonna be easier certainly to go to uh, to a publisher and say, look, I have this many followers. I am a expert on a certain subject as you are an expert on crime and law enforcement. You know, That is gonna definitely get you in the door. For me as a, as a novelist, as a creative writer, I always tell people, don't think about those type of things. Don't think about how am I going to find a publisher? How am I going to, you know, sell this book? How am I going to, those are things that um, you can worry about later. Uh, The only thing I think that you can really concentrate on as a creative writer is to just write a damn good book. And I don't mean that, you know, that always the cream rises to the the top. You know, there there are, you know, uh, certainly some wonderful writers out there that have had a hard time getting published and finding an audience. But I do believe that if you are serious about writing, and if you're serious about becoming a fiction writer, it's all about the work. And it's all about getting better and telling a story and not putting the cart ahead of the horse. And so that's frequently what I get on my end is people want to talk to me about finding an audience and social media and reaching out to a publisher. And, and, and frequently those people, I say, well, have you written a book yet? They said, well, no, I haven't written a book yet. And I said, well, you got to, you got to write a book first, you know, that, you know, I I understand you want to be an author, but first, you know, you got to be a writer. And um, for me, you know, it really was a very humbling experience, which is to get out of college and start at the bottom and work my way up. And writing a lot of bad stuff and learning how to write having an editor who is over my shoulder and ripping up my material and getting better at it and it's a it is a craft it is a it is a process and and too often these days i think because everyone as you've said the instant gratification hey i've written a book let's get it published well it doesn't work that way Um, you know unless you are a celebrity unless you have lived a harrowing experience or unless you have a, you know, a ghost writer or, or something like that. But, you know, there are people that I think, and, and you're one of those people, Frank, that is a, both a good writer and has had a lot of life experience. But I think that those people are very, very rare. Yeah. I, I often tell, tell
0: young people uh, who are struggling with even selecting their college major or taking some heat about their choice of college majors. I've reminded them that my, uh, my parents uh, were not thrilled that I had chosen to as an undergraduate major, English lit. And they, were, you know, they were like, what are you, what do you want to do with that? And, yeah. and uh, well, you know, I just tell people what you're telling people, pursue your passion. Sure. Uh, if you, if you love it, you're good at it. Good things will happen. And that's it. Yeah. Good things have happened for you, uh, ASAC kids so that we're glad that you shared some of that with us. Now I'm sure our, our listeners are going to want to check out your work. How do they do that? Where do they go?
1: Uh, give us some, uh, some tips. Sure. Uh, you can easily find me at uh, aceatkins.com. You know, of course, on all the usual suspects as we, you know, talk about social media and, on Instagram and Twitter at, at Ace Atkins, And that's a great thing about having a very unusual name. There's not, there are not many writers out there named Ace there probably are a few people that maybe you put away over the years in the FBI, probably uh, as alias nicknames, you probably saw Ace there, but not a lot of novelists. Yeah. So I'm, I'm fairly easy to find out there yeah. on the web. Well, and it's, a, it's an
0: alliterative name, which I relate to as well uh, with my own, and, uh, and uh, has, That's right. has some, some writing uh, significance there. Absolutely. Well. Double A. Yeah. We'll, we'll check it out. We'll be looking for your next works and we're grateful for your contribution to our reading, pleasure, and education. And uh, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Frank. Always always great talking to you.
0: Yep, you're always welcome. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for joining our discussion with prolific author and crime novelist Ace Atkins, who joined us from Oxford, Mississippi. Join us next time as we continue to go behind and beyond The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi.
1: The Bureau is written by Frank Fogluzzi, and executive produced by Allison Gill, with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey, with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.